Uh, it kind of occurred to me as I was doing some planning for um, the project for this year that we actually have never really preached through um, where we're going as a church. So it's kind of really good for everyone who's new here. You've come at a really good time because what you hear about is what we're all on about. You can work out whether you want to buy into it, whether you don't want to buy into it. Um, but uh, basically that's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to be doing a uh, series for the first five weeks called Who Are We? And it's really talking about not who are you individually or who am I, but who is the project or what kind of people do we want in the project. Actually, that's probably not a very good way to express it. What kind of people do we want God to, to build in the project? I guess that's the heart of it. Because the Bible's very clear about the fact that... Uh, God's made you something, but there's also a process in which you become what you've been already made. All right? So uh, if you look at theology, for example, there's a couple of terms in theology. One of them is justification, which is where God forgives sins and he makes you pure. But then there's another theology in, uh, called sanctification, which is about you becoming more holy, which is becoming more pure. All right? So you are pure, so become pure. That's kind of what the Bible says, and that seems to be the way that God makes things to work, is this is how you are, so become how you are become what you are. So uh, that's kind of a little bit of an overview of uh, where we're going to be going in this little uh, series. And today and next week and the week after, there's gonna, you'll have an opportunity in the message to test and examine yourself, all right? To have an inside look and just to see uh, whether you come up to not where we think you should be, but where the Bible thinks you should be, where God wants you to be. All right? And if you don't, it's good news because God promises assistance and help and he actually wants to take you to a certain location and he will uh, help you to get there. But there's, uh, it, it's quite a, a common theme in the Bible. If you actually have a look at um, Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the gig here is all of us, not just the leadership, all of us need to be having a good look at ourselves and working out our salvation. What does it mean? What's the next step? I mean, we all kind of do a little bit in our lives. Um, New Year's Eve, maybe New Year's Day, where we think, I'm going to make a new resolution for this year. Well, the Bible's kind of, and God's saying, you should be doing this regularly. Check yourself out. How are you doing? Measure yourself against the Bible and see what else God wants to do in your life. Another scripture is uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. This is a little bit more freaky. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. So today there'll be a little bit of testing, all right? And hopefully it's about you testing yourself. There's, uh, today I'm just going to go, and I've, I don't think I've ever used them before, but I'm just going Venn diagram mad today, right? It's probably Venn idolatry today at the project. But uh, as far as I see it, there's three critical components to having a healthy relationship with God, and that's these. Someone with a healthy relationship with God loves God, knows God, and the third bit is really important too, God knows them. And this is not omniscience, this is not God's all-knowingness, this is a relational knowing. And you can see if you only had one or two of those, you'd actually be unbalanced. You actually wouldn't have a balanced relationship with God. So everyone's aim, mine included, is to aim for the centre. All right? You want to be in the red circle. Okay? And today we're actually going to look at what it means to love God, to know God, and to be known by God. All right. The first thing that happens for anyone, the first spark of life in anyone's spiritual soul inside of them is that they start to love God. All right? So let's test ourselves on that. Matthew 22, verse 37 to 38 says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So let me ask you, do you? Like, well, Jesus, I mean, Jesus says this is it. This is like, I mean, you talk about all the things that are really important. He's saying the top one, love God. So, so how are you doing it? It's like you can get number 37, 38 and 420 in line and he's going, well, what about number one? Are you doing number one? All right, let's have a quick confession session. Who here, have a raise of hands if you're, if you're happy to do this. If you're not, you can put your hand out and make it 
look like you've got a different opinion. But who here is actually sitting there thinking, oh, great, there's more stuff I've got to do? Put your hand up if you're on those. Come on, is that it? Like, seriously, just stop, stop for a minute. Is loving someone having to do stuff at its heart? It's not. I've heard uh, people recently, and I'm, uh, I'm not going to say who they are because they're reasonably reputable and they're starting to irritate me when they say this because I, I don't think it's exactly right. I've heard so many people say so many times this, love is a choice, not a feeling. Now, sometimes love chooses when it doesn't have the right feeling, but if someone said that they love someone and they never, ever had any feelings, would that be right? I don't think it would. You see, this is kind of what happens to us all the time, is that we get things mixed up. If you go, and some of you right now might be thinking, yeah, but didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments? Yeah, he did, but look at the order. Love, and then obey. So do you even, I mean, this is a classic thing for, I mean, if, if you're married or you've got a girlfriend, there's lots of times you can say, look, I really love you. But, you know, sometimes you can say to them, I, I really like you. And, it, you know, what's interesting is it's a little bit different, isn't it? When someone says, I like you, it's like, I'm kind of pretty impressed with you. As a person, I, I kind of like you. I actually, man, I, it's good to be with you. You're, you're a really good person. You know, and, and the love's in there too, but like kind of expresses something a little bit different. What if I asked you this? Do you actually like God? Do you like him? You see, if part of your, re- you know, if you're reacting now and you're just kind of thinking, oh, Sonny Girl's just putting another heavy thing on me, I'm just going, I'm not putting anything heavy on you. It's like, do you actually like him? Do you love him? Because Jesus is saying, if you actually like him and you love him, Actually, obeying him is not going to be that hard. And most probably, if you're finding it difficult obeying him and following him, there's probably a problem with your love for him. You've probably forgotten what he's like. And in in addition to that, you can see up in John 14 that Jesus says, look, I'm going to make it super easy for you. And it's not super easy, we all know that, but he's kind of going, I'm going to give you the infinite Holy Spirit to live inside of you and to help you to get this done. So it's not like Jesus goes, hey, here's 4,335 billion things to do. Just get them all done, please, in the next three years. He says, here's the deal. You need to love me. If you love me, you'll obey me, and I'm going to help you to obey me because I'm going to give you a little bit of help from the Holy Spirit. And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't love him at all. And the Bible is actually very, very clear about how someone comes to love God. People come to love God. Why? We love because he loved us first. So I'd say to you today, I'd put it before you today, if you're not a Christian or you're sitting there and you're going, I don't love God, there's good news for you. The way that you'll start loving him is when you realise how much he loves you. It's this, it's like sitting on a doctor's bench and getting hit in the knee with one of their little hammers and the knee automatically reflexes. When you understand the, deep, the depth and the greatness of the love that God has for you, your reflex action is that you love him back. If you don't love him, it's probably because you don't get it. You don't get that. And you probably need to ask God to help you to get it. And we could have a show of hands and say, he, he understands God's, God's love for them. And you can put your hand on it and you can say, yeah, I think I do. But then you go to Ephesians 3 and Paul prays a prayer and he basically says no one can get it. So as good as you've got it, you haven't got it well enough. All right? Because if you got it more, you'd act differently. You see, your, your love for him is actually proportional to your revelation of his love for you. Just is, you know. So you need to grow in your understanding of God's love for you. And then you'll love him more and his commandments won't be as burdensome, right? Because there's probably a whole bunch of people who fall into more of a, a melancholic kind of um, get-down-on-yourself kind of personality, all right? 
and you just put pressure on yourself and, and you just think, you get up in the morning and God's got a list of 15 things you've got to do in the first 30 seconds that you get out of bed and if you don't do them, you're not good enough. And those people need to hear that God loves you and you just need to enjoy his love and you need to understand his love for you, then you'll love him back and those things won't be a 15-point list that you've got to do in 30 seconds. All right? It'll be a delight. The flip side is there's some of you that walk massively freely in grace and you need to know that God's pretty hard taskmaster sometimes and he calls for a high level from you. So let me answer this question. I'll let you ponder. What is loving God? You just think about these words as I throw them out about what love for God is. Loving God is actually desiring him. It's treasuring him. It's delighting in him. I mean, I, I think I said this before at the project, but I'll say it again. How many times have you been frustrated that you haven't been able to spend time with God reading the Bible and praying? You know, you talk to any Christian who's been a Christian long enough and the big beef is they're going, man, it's just really hard to sit down and read the Bible and understand it. Well, where are all the Christians that are really frustrated that they miss one out? I mean, I think they're out there and I'm sure that some of you are like that. And that's been, honestly, I'll just be straight with you, it's been becoming like that more and more for me. I just go, I just need to get that time because I just want to be with him. I just want to read what he's got to say. I want to listen to what he says in his word. I want to talk to him. Sometimes I want to sing songs in private because I'm a preacher and I sing like a preacher. All right? Loving God's being satisfied in him. It's not about running to anything else. It's just I'm satisfied. I'm, I'm content. Loving God is about cherishing him. It's about savouring him. I mean, there's, there's going to be moments where, obviously you're not at work because you don't want to waste your, your boss's time, but there'll be moments where you just, even just in your head, you pull aside for a few minutes and you just, you're like a cow sitting in a paddock on a lovely cool day chewing its cud and just, you're just chewing over scriptures, you're chewing over God and you're just thinking about him. You just think, man, he's good. Because don't you do that? Don't you do that with anyone that you love? You think about the last cool time that you had together. You think about the camping trip that you went on. You think about the date that you went out on. You think about the movies that you went to. That's what you do. Why wouldn't you do it with God? Loving God is valuing him. It's prizing him. It's revering him. It's admiring him. You see, we've been trashed a bit by our culture and part of it kind of started in about the 1880s with Freud. Freud basically came out and he said, uh, love is equal to sex. And our culture pretty much does that too, don't they? It's like the movies say, if someone loves someone, they're going to sleep with them. Which is not sleeping with them, we all know what it is, right? It's having sex with them. They have sex with them, they commit adultery or fornication, a really important F word. You know, we say that we love cats and we also love our husbands. We say that we love ice creams and we love our children. We say that we love football and we love God. Well, I hope it's different. The really scary bit is um, John Piper, a guy that I've read and listened to quite a bit, and he actually says, God threatens terrible things for people who won't be happy. Check this out. This is out of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Here's the deal here. Actually, before we go on, I'll just preface it. Uh, Moses, uh, the Israelites have just come out of Egypt. God saved them. He's rescued them, taken them through the Red Sea. Uh, everything's sweet. All right? And they get out. They get into this. They're, they're heading toward this beautiful land of Canaan where there's just abundance, absolute abundance. All right? And Moses stands up and he says, right, let me just lay it out for you. Here's what's going to happen if you do what God says. He'll bless you. And you can read in uh, chapter 28 all the blessings that God says he's going to bring on his people. But at the end, he says, here's what's going to happen if you don't do what he says. He's going to curse you. And he's going to bring all these nasty, and they're terrible consequences if you read it. It's worth a read just to uh, make you sit up straight. All right? It's, uh, there's some festy stuff there. But then he goes on to say this in 28, verse 45 to 47. Note this. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. 
Because you did not serve the Lord your God with what? Joyfulness and gladness of heart. Now, obviously they've been disobedient, but can you see here God saying, I'm going to come for you if you don't serve me with a happy and a glad and a light spirit. Unless you love me. So is your service of God, is your love for God a happy, light and joyful thing? Now, I'm not saying that life doesn't get hard and it gets heavy sometimes. But is it, a, is, is it just a free, willing, giving response to God? All right, here we go. If you've got a pen, you can get it out. We're getting to the first examine yourself. I'm going to hand out a sheet here. And uh, uh, maybe I'll hand it out first and then I'll explain it. Just need a few helpers down here, if that's all right. Actually, uh, we can probably just run them along the rows. And uh, I'll intro it. Here we go. On the top of this sheet is a picture of two canaries in a birdcage. Most of you would probably be aware of this, but uh, some time ago, some years ago, uh, the way that they actually used to work out in coal mines, whether uh, the gases were building up, is they'd set up canaries in cages, all right? Because this is true, because canaries actually used to be far more sensitive to the gases than what humans were. And basically, if you looked up and the canary was dead on the bottom of the cage, it was pretty much time to get out of the coal mine, all right? So uh, I'm just going to use this metaphor, and you might think it's a bit crazy. And if you're new here and you think, do they do this all the time? The answer is no. And is he normally like this? Well, he kind of is, but we don't do this all the time. So I'll explain it. On the, uh, for each of these questions, which I'll uh, read out for you in a minute, there's a continuum from one end to the other, all right? And I've used the uh, canary analogy, okay? One end of the continuum is dead. The canary's dead, all right? So I'll ask the question. If you go, nah, pretty much not doing that at all, then the canary's dead on that question. So you can put a cross or a mark or something down that end. Then in the middle, I've got dizzy, all right? So you've got dead, dizzy. The canary's dizzy and it's swooning on the perch, all right? which means there's times where it's okay and there's other times where it's not. And the other end of the continuum is Diddy, right? A Diddy is a simple musical song, which is what canaries play when they're really happy and they're really healthy. Is everyone cool with that? So you've got to rate yourself dead, dizzy or Diddy. Don't rate yourself a dizzy blonde. All right, you ready? Has everyone got one? Oh, we might have run out. Did we run out? We're all good. Here we go. You can catch up if uh, you haven't got one yet. Number one, was it God that stirred your affections the most in the last two weeks, three weeks, four weeks? Dead, dizzy or diddy? If it was, you're singing a song. Your canary's alive and well, all right? Number two, how much have you thought about him? If you haven't thought about him much at all, tick off dead, Dizzy, yeah, sometimes, or Diddy, the right-hand end. By the way, if you're not a Christian, you're not in big time into uh, spiritual stuff, it's probably, this is probably more for people who have uh, been Christians for a little bit, but you're welcome to fill it out. Three, if you love, I'm not going to sing the song, but if a man loves a woman, he will spend money on the woman, Yeah? If you love someone, you spend money on them. So, how much money have you spent on him? Dead, dizzy or diddy? Four. How much have you talked to him? Prayed. Five. How much have you listened to him? That's going to include reading the Bible. It's going to actually, might even include times of solitude and just quiet. It's pretty hard to get if you've got a family, but if you love God, you'll probably, somehow you'll find a way to get there. Six, how much time have you spent with him? This is not, like, you don't make the canary alive by going home and doing all this stuff, but this tells you where the canary's at. You with me? So don't, don't go getting all kind of, oh, I've got to work harder about it, right? This is just a reflection. This gives you a bit of a reading or a measure about where you're at. Seven, how have you served him? All right, have you served him lots? Have you been thinking about serving him? You don't have to write a word down, but have you, have you been serving him well? Eight, 
How many desires of yours have taken a back seat to the desires that he has? I kind of vowed and declared early in, our, uh, early in my life I'd never have a garden with roses or flowers of any sort, to be honest. But I have a wife that likes roses. I like roses, all right? And I genuinely do, but because that's what actually happens. If you love someone, you start to love the things they love, don't you? And you actually start to appreciate what they appreciate. And that's really what I'm asking in eight there is, how many desires of yours have taken a back seat to the desires that he has? Nine, to what degree can you see yourself learning to love what he loves? Can you see that? Things that you never loved. And you're starting to love the things he loves. Ten. This is a bit stickier. It's really worth a uh, read in Nehemiah 10. How much do you give the first fruits to God? In the last two, three, four weeks, see the deal in the Old Testament is the top 10% goes to God. The best, the cream. Can you see that in your own life with your money, with your time, with your effort? If you love him, you'll see some evidence of that. The big problem, and you can rate yourself, give yourself, just take a punt at where you're at. It's the only time in church you're allowed to gamble. Take a punt at uh, where you sit across all ten questions. Well, you don't, don't put your hand up or anything, but where are you? Are you dead, dizzy or diddy? All right? Is it going well? I'm sure some of you are going to be at the good end. All right, things are going along pretty well. Some of you are probably at the dead end, and uh, probably most points in between. See, the big thing is that when you don't love God, it's not that you just stop loving Him. You, you find something else to love. That's what you do, and you've found a better God. If you're not loving God the most, you've found a better God to love and to worship. And uh, the weird thing about it is the other gods that we replace God with aren't as good and they disappoint us and they don't provide for us what we hope that they're going to provide for us. They're like one of those dumb skill tester arcade games at the shops. You know, Everyone's going in there saying, no, 5,000 people have come before me and no one got it, but I'm getting a mobile phone. I reckon I can do it. It's going to work for me. All right? And it's a bit like that with us in uh, loving other stuff outside of God. We see everyone who's gone before who's ended in ruins and we think, no, but that, that won't happen to me. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make my car being my God work. I'm going to make alcohol being my God work. It's going to work for me. And then it doesn't work for me, just like it hasn't worked for everyone else because no one works nothing and no one works as well as a God, as what God does. It leaves us empty. So I just want to have a quick uh, look at a case study in uh, Revelation. Uh, Jesus appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos. They tried to kill John by boiling boiling him alive and he didn't die so they kicked him off on an island. I pretty much wouldn't want him on the same property as me if he'd survived being boiled alive. Or I don't know, there's something going on with him. If you didn't like God, get him off, get him onto the island of Patmos. And Jesus showed up and gave him some specific messages to some churches. And one of the churches he gave a message to was the church at Ephesus. Here's what he said. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Some of you need to repent today. You need to do it. Now, before you start tripping into the, I've got to work harder again, have a look at about the first four or five lines of that scripture. These are people that are working hard. These are people that are getting the works right. On the outside, they look like they love God, but underneath they don't. And God says of them, he says, oh, I know you. I know you and you don't love me like you used to love me. And God would say to some of you here today, I know you and you don't love me like you used to love me. You don't. 
And part of the reason why is because holidays can do that to you. You get out of routine, you lose priorities, and then all of a sudden God's drifted. You don't think that you've drifted, you think God's drifted, and the truth is you're the one that's drifted. And you might be going, well, it feels fine to me, but God would say to you, you don't love me like you used to. Repent. Turn. Think back to the time. For those of you who are in this category, think back to the time where you knew you were really, really close to God. Closer than you are now. What were you doing then that helped that? See, I think this is what John's talking about. He's saying, go back to what you were doing. Now, obviously, God wants to take people forward, so he wants you not just to do what you were doing 12 months ago when things were good, but he wants to accelerate that and take it even further. You see, I realised a few mornings ago, I've been, honestly, I'll be honest with you, I've been really struggling with some stuff. I've been struggling with my heart and my thought life and just getting it into line and thinking there'd be a thousand other people that'd be better at preaching this sermon today than me. And I was the other morning, I'm just sitting there and I'm just going, God, I just need your help, I need your help, I need your help, I need your help. And you know what I realised? Needing someone's help is not the same as getting someone's forgiveness. See, if you've got kids, your kids could offend you and they still need your help and they could be still asking for your help. But you know that there's a problem, there's something that's in between the two of you. And unless that gets dealt with, it doesn't matter how much they say they're in trouble and how much they need help, there's actually a problem in between that needs to be dealt with. And it just hit me with force. I've just gone, this is amazing. Like, one thing that, I don't know what that happens to you, but one thing that happens to me is my saying sorry, I go through seasons where it's specific, and then there's whole periods of time where it's very, very general. I'm a bad person and I need your help. But you don't sin, you don't disobey God in general, so you shouldn't say sorry in general. You disobey, you sin in specifics, so you should say sorry in specifics. And this is not about getting depressed or anything. This is about, this is actually the gateway to this light love for God that I'm talking about. The gateway is to sit down and say, okay, so today I was really anxious for five minutes, for ten minutes, for five hours today. I was really anxious and you told me not to be anxious and to trust in you. And I didn't trust in you and that's why I was so anxious. And I, man, I'm, just, I'm really sorry and I need you to just get that out of the way between you and I. Or maybe today I had a lustful thought. I was sitting there daydreaming and I was imagining something or maybe I was looking at something that I shouldn't have been looking at. And so you name it. You name it in front of him. He is gracious and merciful and he'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you and purify you from all the dirtiness. So why wouldn't you do it? Why would you just do, at the end of a day, a general mop-up kind of thing, you know, where you get the mop out and you're some kind of janitor that just goes around cleaning up the mess. Get down on your hands and knees and... Pick it out and just say, God, this one right here, I need you to clean that up. And I think this is probably part of what John might be actually talking about when he says, repent, turn, turn in specifics from what you have been doing. John Piper says this, a vague bad feeling that you're a crummy person is not the same as conviction for sin. Feeling rotten is not the same as repentance. This morning I began to pray and felt unworthy to be talking to the creator of the universe. It was a vague sense of unworthiness. So I told him so. Now what? Nothing changed until I began to get specific about my sins. Crummy feelings can be useful if they lead to conviction for sins. Vague feelings of being a bad person are not very helpful. The fog of unworthiness needs to take shape into clear dark pillars of disobedience. Then you can point to them and repent and ask forgiveness and take aim to blow them up. That's what you need to do. All right, what else? Part of the reason why you don't love God or why your love for God's weak is because you found a superior satisfaction. So you know what you need to do? You need to break it. Let me tell you one way you can break a superior satisfaction. Fast it, which means stop having it. Just stop it. If TV's your superior satisfaction, stop watching it for weeks if you have to, all right? And I tell you, I guarantee you, if you fast the thing that is the superior satisfaction over Christ, within weeks, 
He will be your superior satisfaction. And you'll go, I can't believe that my kitchen rules was my superior satisfaction. All right? You just won't be able to believe it. You know, you'll be going, Jesus is so wonderful. Because that's part of what you've got to do. You've got to break the superior satisfaction. You see, and some of you going, might be thinking, oh, that sounds a bit legalistic, right? Well, listen, if I stopped loving my wife because I didn't spend any time with her, would it be legalistic for me to lock in some specific slots of time where I just wanted to get to know her again? Now, that's not obviously the dynamics of how a relationship works, but that would be a start, wouldn't it? Because, in a sense, if I stopped loving my wife, which I haven't, by the way, I love her big time, right? But if I stopped loving my wife, it's because I don't know her anymore. Some of you might be going, oh, yeah, I've heard this stuff before in church and I've heard how great God is. Well, the truth is, if you've heard about it and you're not interested in him, you don't get it, all right? Because if you understood him the way that he was, you wouldn't be saying that. No one says that when they understand the way that he is. We forget what God is like. Number two. Known by God. Check this scripture out. It's really critical to us at the uh, project too. Knowledge puffs up. The church is having this big argument about some doctrinal thing about food sacrificed to idols. And Paul comes in and he says, look, knowledge puffs up, knowledge gets you arrogant, but love builds people up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. You know, notice that? He's saying, you think you know something, but you don't get it. You're actually missing something really important. And this is the, the bit I want to focus on. But if anyone loves God, he is what? He's known by God. Now, isn't this interesting? Does God know you? Yeah, you can sit there and you can go, look, well, God's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. Yeah, he knows me. This is not talking about God's ultimate knowledge. This is about relational knowledge. You know, have you ever noticed this? You can actually be friends with someone and every now and then, I don't know whether this has ever happened to you, but every now and then they do something and you just kind of go, well, that's weird. Why do they do that? And often, well, I think often this can happen in marriages. As you're getting to know someone more and more, you can get to points where you go, I wonder why they do that. And then in a quiet moment where, uh, where both parties are willing to be happy and, and honest and transparent with each other, a little bit of information comes out about something that happened in their past and all of a sudden you go, ah, it all makes sense now. You ever had one of those moments? It all makes sense. And at that moment, you know what's happened? is your knowledge of them and your knowing of them increased. And it wasn't really an intellectual knowing, it was a relational knowing. It was an intimate moment that actually happened that helped you to know them better. And all of a sudden, what happened? The other person was transparent and they were vulnerable and let you see into them a little bit more and they got to know you better. You see... This scripture is saying, if you love Jesus, God knows you. Well, how well does he know you? So he knows everything about you, but what are you hiding from him? You ever had moments in your relationship with God where you know there's something that you've got to bring before him and you know that he knows about it, but you just kind of, you know, there's like a little cellar and you just kind of shove it into the cellar and you just kind of shut the door and you just, we're not going to deal with that. And that's like a little area in your life where you've just closed away from God and God doesn't know you. You see, the kind of knowledge God wants of you is a relational deep knowledge that covers absolutely everything. You see, I think Adam and Eve actually did this in the Garden of Eden. You see, they failed. What did they do? They hid from God. And all of a sudden, for the first time, God didn't know Adam and Eve. Now, if you want to be a hardcore religious theological nut, you could say, well, yeah, he did, but not relationally, did he? All of a sudden, it was different. And there's almost a sense in it that uh, I'm scared, from Adam and Eve, I'm scared of how bad I am and how big you are. I've got to get away from you. 
there's this classic story, you should have a bit of a read of it, in Second Chronicles 29 about King Hezekiah who uh, came on the scene and the, basically the nation of Israel was in a mess. They hadn't been doing what God asked them to do. Check out what King Hezekiah says. This should be a model for all of us, I think. He says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant, a solemn promise with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. You know, it's left to the few bold people that when they fail, they move toward the fierceness of God, not away from it. Is that you? Do you move toward God's fierceness when you fail and when you disobey him and when you sin? I'd love to be like King Hezekiah. Wouldn't that be good? Every time we fail, it's, not, it's almost like you run away from him and he just gets fierce. You come toward him and he gets forgiving and gracious. He's good to you. People hide from each other for a whole variety of reasons. One is that they've been hurt. Don't they? Someone hurts them and they go, I don't want to be hurt again. So I'm not going to let you know me. And sometimes that happens with God, doesn't it? People go, God, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. You didn't stop the bad thing happening, so I'm just going to, I'm not going to let you know me. I'm going to shut you out. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe you failed. Maybe you failed someone and so you shut them off and you say, I'm not going to let you close anymore. Maybe you failed God, you feel guilt before God and so you just say, no, I'm not going to let you in. You don't get to know me. Maybe it's shame. You know, sometimes with people, they do something, a lot of people see it, they feel a really sharp sense of pain and they just go, I'm out. No one here is going to know me anymore because it's so embarrassing. It can be like that with God too, can't it? Sometimes people fear the reactions of others when they find out what they're really like. Aren't we like that with God sometimes too? Just go, how's he going to react? Which is why preachers like me need to stand up every Sunday and say, if you come to him and you ask his forgiveness and you just humble yourself, he'll forgive you, he'll be kind to you, he'll be loving to you because underneath, and we all kind of know that in our heads, but underneath when we fail, we're going, he's going to get me, all right? So I've got to put on a sumo suit and then I've got to hide in an airbag, right? Because it's going to be bad. It's going to get messy, right? Because you keep, and you think that, and you kind of, you put the fig leaves over, you're trying to work somewhere. How can I actually get away from him? Because he's going to get me, right? And over and over and time and time again in the Bible, he says, I'm not coming to get you, all right? John 3, I think 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, all right? Because he loves it. So you can be really theologically correct in your head, but when it comes down to your heart when you fail, it can run on a whole different tune, can't it? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And so that's why you need to come to church every Sunday, right? Because every Sunday you need someone to stand up and tell you, don't run away from him. Go toward him. He's not fierce when you go toward him. He's gentle and he's loving and he's forgiving. Don't run away from him in your shame. You know, I reckon one of the oddest things about people is people have a deep down desire that maybe someone somewhere will know me fully and not reject me. And that's a really hard one to squash. You know why? Because I think it ties in with the grand story that's been happening over all of history that there is someone who will accept you and love you and know you fully and not reject you. So listen, and this is kind of, C.S. Lewis talks about the argument from, uh, from desire. This is, this is just the way it works. You've got this thing going on inside of you because there is someone who does that. And some of you, maybe, if you haven't been married or you haven't been married long enough, think that maybe your spouse will do it. All right? But anyone who's been married long enough knows that it, well, a lot of the times they do, don't they? But they don't always, do they? Spouses disappoint. We all disappoint each other because we're all a bit messed up. So you need someone better than your spouse who's not going to give up on you. And we sit there sometimes and we think, maybe you hear a preacher like me and you kind of go, really? Is he that good? Or is he just kind of making this up? Is he, really? 
really, I could get the bit from outside of me that no one has seen. Can I get that bit out? And he'll be okay with that? Yes, he will. Because there'd be very few people in this uh, church right now who haven't got a bit inside of them that no one's seen. It's kind of... And, and then we've got that whole other bit that's kind of the paper mache over the bit that no one's seen. So we try to kind of fashion it into something else so we kind of look acceptable. All right. Number three. We've done loving God, known by God, knowing God. All right, I'm going to fly through this. I'm running out of time. Here's another Venn diagram. It's by a guy called uh, John Frame. He uh, wrote a book called The Doctrine of the, the Knowledge of God. This is really fascinating. This will make sense a little bit later on. But he actually says if you want to get to a place of full awareness and true knowledge in the middle there, you actually need to know three things. He actually says you need to know God as revealed in the Bible. You need to know facts about the world and how God's worked in creation. So that's math, science and all those kind of things. And the last thing down the bottom there is you actually need a knowledge of yourself. All right? So here's how it works. If you have a knowledge about the Bible up here and a knowledge about yourself, you're probably some monk in a monastery somewhere. All right? You know yourself really well and you know God's word really well, but you don't know anything about the rest of the world. All right? That's not true knowledge. Okay? Because God actually reveals himself through these three spheres. If you... Uh, know lots about the Bible and you know lots about the world but you don't actually know yourself very well you're a really dangerous fundamentalist alright, who's going to hurt people probably and if you know lots of stuff about yourself and you know lots of stuff about the world, you're a secularist if you don't know anything about God does that make sense, roughly? so to actually get to true knowledge you need to know those three things this is going to become apparent in a minute by taking you through the story of Moses very, very quickly I want to take you through Moses' call from God. Now, Moses uh, grew up in uh, Egypt. He left Egypt because he killed the guy and Pharaoh was going to get him. He was looking after sheep in the wilderness. God comes along and he says, look, my people are getting a hard time in Egypt. I want you to come and save them. Watch this. The first step is Moses doubts God's character. Here's the scriptures. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? All right. If you go back to that Venn diagram, the two circles that Moses knows, and you'll notice this as we go through, is he knows about himself. I can't do it. All right. And he knows probably a bit about God's character, that God could do it, but he actually doesn't think God is going to do it. All right? He's not going to actually work in creation. He's not actually going to do something. He knows the truth about God and he knows himself. He knows he can't do it. Check this out. God says back to Moses, he says, I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Isn't this a really curious guarantee that God gives to Moses? Moses goes, how do I know it's going to happen? And God goes, you'll come and worship me on this mountain. He goes, well, thanks. All right? You could have at least given me a taser or something that I could hit Pharaoh with. All right? But he didn't. Okay? He's just going, you're going to come back and worship me. And he's going, well, that's a really good guarantee. That's like worth nothing to me. All right? And then God and Moses start uh, arguing. All right? That's what we just uh, read if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to me. Do you see the problem here? Moses doesn't actually have true knowledge about God. All right? He just doesn't have it. He's probably got some truth about God, truth about himself, but doesn't have true knowledge about God. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please just send someone else. So they're having this argument. He's probably the boldest man on the planet that's probably ever lived. He gets to see God in some form in the burning bush and he has an argument with him, like the first time he ever talks to him. All right? that's, 
Don't do that, right? If you, if you go home this week and somehow miraculously God shows up, just don't have an argument with him, right? Because, well, the first thing is you never win, all right? But it's just uncool. But you know what happens is Moses actually obeys God. So we actually, the Israelites get taken out of Egypt. They end up at the Red Sea. The Israelite soldiers are coming. They're probably going to slaughter a bunch of them and take them back to slavery. And Moses says, God, what's going on? We're going to get killed here and we're stuck near this sea. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I'll get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. All right? Here's the deal. God says, can you just do what I'm telling you to do? Just do it, right? Now, I hope you all would agree with me. There's a bit of a problem. Moses doesn't have true knowledge here, does he? He doesn't because he doesn't think God's going to do it and that's not true knowledge, all right? What does God say to him? He says, just do what I'm telling you to do. Look at what Moses writes after they get through the Red Sea. This is true knowledge. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You see different tone? That's way different to Exodus 3 and 4. He's going, don't send me. I don't want to do it. What was the difference? Well, one of the differences was he just obeyed God. This guy, John Frame, this theologian John Frame, actually says this. He says, you actually don't get to know God unless you obey him. So, let me ask you this. This is where we finish. Are you obeying God? I'm not talking about necessarily... I mean, let's be honest. All of us fall short. There's probably 250 things that we're not doing. All right? But if, if you've been walking with God long enough, you know that there's some stuff that he wants to do and he just keeps coming back and he's like an annoying person in the movies. He keeps nudging you in the ribs all the time. All right? Just kind of boring in with their elbow. You know, and God's a bit like that. He just, just keeps coming up. Keeps coming up. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. Will you do it? Can you just hurry up and do it? I asked you about this last week. We were talking about this last month. And the weird thing is, is that we actually get to the point where we think, as Christians, we can go, yeah, I think I know God, and we're disobedient. And you know what? If you're disobedient, you don't know him. You just don't know him. Because obedience to God gives you an opportunity to see him at work in creation. You see, we can say, well, I know myself, and I know that I'm a failure, maybe, if you like that, and I know God's word, and I know that's what I'm supposed to be doing, but over here, you just forget about it. You just go, yeah, I think I know God because I know stuff out of the Bible. God said to Moses, didn't he? He says, when you've done what I've asked you to do, you're going to come back and worship me on this mountain. And now it makes sense. That's my guarantee to you. My guarantee is that it's going to happen. So you just obey me and you'll get true knowledge about me. Almost done. So what are the steps to knowing God? Oh, surprise, surprise, obey him. Obey him. You see, a fuller revelation of God comes from seeing his acts in creation and you see his acts in creation when you obey him. You see, the people in, uh, in Corinth, we looked at that scripture before about how they thought they knew lots of things about God. But they didn't have a love for God. They actually didn't know about themselves, did they? See, if we knew God, we'd be acting differently. If we truly knew God, we'd be acting differently. But you know what? You know what else is true? If we, tr if we acted differently, we would truly know God. If we obeyed him, we would truly know him. Two more points. John Frame says this. This is something we've talked about at the project before too. Every single person has got rules, interpersonal, relational rules about how someone else can get to know them. 
and someone can come up to you, and this is what we call antisocial behaviour. If someone comes up to you, and just goes roughshod over you, and just decides they're going to set the rules about how they get to know you, what do you do? Well, you just close up, don't you? You just say, well, not on... Everyone's got some terms that other people get to know them by. And you know what? God's got terms by which you get to know him. And you know what it is? He's the boss. He's the Lord. You're the servant. You're the child. You're not the father. It's one of the questions I uh, often ask my sons in my house. You know, they'll say something and I'll say, what's your name? And then they'll say their name and I'll say, what's my name? Daddy. Because he's acting like daddy. He thinks he's daddy. He's getting out of place. All right? And the thing with God is if you don't get that in the right place, if you think God's your servant and he's got to provide what you need, you won't get to know him. He just, he'll close up and go, done. You get it the right way around, you come to him humbly. He'll let you know him. This is what John Frame says. Knowing God is knowing him as Lord. Knowing his name, Yahweh. As we saw earlier, God performs mighty acts so that men may know that I am the Lord. So you know what you need to do? Do the last thing he told you to do. Can anyone think of any of those? Have you ever been through a season where you're just going, I don't know what's going on? You, you kind of go to God and you just kind of go, I'd like to get another lead about what you want me to do. And he's just going, well, <clears throat> just over there, three months ago, I told you to do something and I'm not going to tell you what the next part is on your briefing until you get that one done. So, so get that done. All right? If you know you've got a problem with anxiety or anger or lust and you just know that there's been a time where he's gone, you need to deal with it. So don't, go, don't leave that. Go back and deal with it. Get to work on it. He wants to help you. The Bible's very clear about the fact that you know God when you can think like him. All right? You know God when you can think like him. This is one thing that John Frame talks about over and over. He's got stacks and stacks of scriptures. He says the goal of being a human is learning how to think like God. To think his thoughts after him. It's a bit like that, isn't it, when you've got a good friend. Haven't you noticed good friends? They, they've got a friend and they can predict what they like. They can predict how they're going to react. They can predict what they're going to actually think about a certain situation. Is that where you're at? Can you, can you predict what God would do? That's when you know that you know him. 